Welcome to GDPR Now. This episode is going to be looking at third-party cookies and in particular we'll be looking at the recent European Court of Justice case, Fashion ID. Now this podcast and the case has implications for any website owner that uses third-party cookies and also has important implications for any businesses that uses third-party cookies as part of the data journey for uh, its data subjects. The podcast should take, I don't know, 15 to 25 minutes. Frequent listeners will know I have a tendency to ramble on, so it may take a bit longer. Normally a podcast is me and guests. Today it's just me, Mark Sherwood Edwards. And just to remind everyone, this podcast is brought to you by thisisdpo.co.uk, which you can find at thisisdpo.co.uk. So what are the facts of the case? Well, Fashion ID was an online retailer and on their website they had a Facebook plugin, the like one. So if you like it, like it, you click on it and that feeds into Facebook. Action was brought in the German courts by a German consumer association which claimed that Fashion ID was a controller but that it was not issuing a privacy notice, it wasn't gaining consent, it wasn't behaving like a that controllers should behave. Now that got escalated to the German courts and then ended up at the European Court of Justice for some decisions on the law. And those who are familiar with this, this kind of court case will know that the ECJ doesn't decide on facts, it just decides on what the law is in that particular situation. Now ECJ cases often come in kind of two parts, the judgment itself and also the Advocate General's opinion. Now, the Advocate General is like an advisor, and he or she writes an opinion. And the interesting thing about it is that it's typically much more expansive in its analysis and its reasoning and things it says than the court's official judgment. So, unlike Anglo-Saxon cases where the judges like to write long judgments and lots of reasoning and that kind of stuff, the typical uh, ECJ judgment is relatively short. So if you want an inkling of the thinking that went into it, then the Advocate General's opinion, particularly when it's followed by the ECJ, as it was in this case, is actually uh, a useful thing to take a look at. And I'll probably be referring to bits of it in the rest of this podcast, but both documents, the judgment and the Advocate General's opinion, are available on the show notes. I should also point out, before we go any further, that this case was based on the old directive, not under the GDPR, but in practice, most of the issues, if all the issues, are the same under the GDPR as they were under the old law. So, back to the case, Fashion ID said, well, we can't be the controller because, frankly, we don't know what happens to the data. Facebook gathers the data and then we don't really know what's going on. And if we can't know, if we don't know what's going on in the data, we can't be the controller. The ECJ said no, that's not the case, because there is some old case involving Jehovah's Witnesses in Finland, where the main Jehovah's Witness body, main Jehovah's Witness body, didn't quite know what's going on with the data, but the individual Jehovah's Witnesses did, and the in that case, the court found that the main Jehovah's Witnesses community, the big body, and individual witnesses themselves were joint controllers, and so got around the fact that the community body didn't quite know what's going on with the data. So in this case, 
the court went down the lines that actually these guys are probably joint controllers. And to determine whether someone's a, uh, a controller at all, you look at whether they have the means and the purposes for processing. The, they determine the means and the purposes by which the data is being processed. And if they're joint controllers, they need some kind of commonality of means and commonality of purposes. And in this case, the means is relatively simple because Facebook had the plugin, Fashion ID had the website, they put the plugin on the website, and that's a commonality of means. And in terms of the purposes, uh, slightly more expansive in advocate general's opinion, but more the same approach in the court. They looked at the purposes. Well, Facebook just wants traffic coming across its website so it can collect data and exploit that data uh, and for advertising and so on. And Fashion ID, well, actually similar kind of motives. They wanted, uh, they wanted likes on Facebook, which in turn would feed into advertising and turn would feed back into revenue. So it's a sufficient commonality of purpose for both Facebook and Fashion ID to be joint controllers. Now, that's all very well, but it gives a slight problem because if you're a joint controller of Facebook and you're just running up the, the website, you've really got no idea what Facebook is doing the rest of the data. So you couldn't really disclose that in your privacy notice because you've got no idea. And if someone comes to you with a subject request or requests a rectification, you really can't comply with it because it's, that data is not sitting with you, it's sitting with Facebook somewhere. So problem. What do you do in this situation? And then the ECJ comes up with actually a fairly creative solution. What it says is there's different stages in the data journey. You can break those stages up and those different stages have got different controllers. And so at this stage, at this initial bit, which I called the collection and the transmission to Facebook, Fashion ID and Facebook are joint controllers together. Now, and, fashion, and that means that Facebook is, once that initial stage is, is complete, then Facebook is controller for the rest of it, but for that initial on its own, but for that initial stage, Facebook and Fashion ID are joint controllers, which kind of means that they can have, uh, you can have a separate lawful basis at each stage, logically, you would assume. Now, what was the lawful basis at this stage? Well, interestingly, the Commission intervened in the proceedings and said, well, we talk why are we talking about lawful basis? This is a cookie. It's governed by the e-privacy directive. There's no such thing as a lawful basis under the e-privacy directive. It's either an essential cookie, consent is not required, or it's a non-essential cookie, in which case consent is required, but there's no lawful basis and no, no such thing as a legi legitimate interest. But in fact, the German referring court had asked about legitimate interest. So interestingly, ECJ went on, talked about that and said, actually, yeah, you can be a joint controller. And as joint controllers, you can have a joint legitimate interest, provided you each have a legitimate interest. Um, it didn't specify it had to be the same legitimate interest, but it's relatively safe to assume relying on the general kind of uh, means and purposes, purpose commonality test, that there's got to be some kind of commonality of legitimate interest, as there is here. They're both marketing, they're both advertising, and that's why they're, they're, they're in business. So interestingly, the European Court of Justice ignored 
the e-privacy directive and just talked about joint controller with joint legitimate interest. Now, I think that's a pretty important decision. So let's just take stock and I'll tell you why I think it's important. The ECJ introduces two important concepts. First of all, the idea of different stages of the data journey. Each stage can have its own controller or its own joint controllers and therefore by more or less implicit implication, if that's not a tautology, each stage can have its own lawful basis, first point. Second point, even at this early stage, the lawful basis can be legitimate interest. So why is this significant? Well, it's significant if you cast back uh, a few episodes to the podcast we did on the ICO's paper on RTB and ad tech, the ICO's position was that if you start off with a cookie, which requires consent, then you need consent all the way through the data journey. And that has been flatly contradicted by the ECJ. Different stages, different controllers, and I think it follows naturally, potentially different lawful bases. And the other significant thing is that the ICO had said, and actually technically they're probably correct, that where the GDPR, and for, this, for these purposes, the Data Protection Directive is more the same thing, the GDPR and e-privacy directive occupies the same space, then the e-privacy directive trumps the GDPR. And that was supported, in fact, by the European Data Protection Board in the paper it did uh, on the interaction between e-privacy and GDPR, and that's also in the show notes in the previous episode. But the ECJ kind of ignores the whole e-privacy side and does everything under the Data Protection Directive. And in the Advocate General's opinion, reviews particular elements, forthcoming elements of the GDPR, see how they're going to fit in, in particular, uh, Article 26, which we'll talk about in a minute. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's good news for those in ad tech because the ICO's initial point was that people in ad tech don't understand uh, cookies. They think there's lawful basis and so on, and they're getting it all wrong. Well, that's been undermined by the ECJ. Does that mean everyone at ad tech running RTB and similar is out of the woods? No, not at all because they've got further problems down the line. But it's certainly helpful for their case. So now let's turn and look at some of the nuts and bolts that came out of the fashion IT decision. Now, there's always been a bit of no one quite knew. If you've got a controller, well, if you've got a website provider and you've got a cookie provider, third-party cookie provider, who is responsible for issuing the uh, disclosure notices, collecting consent if that was acquired, and so on. And in the ICO's uh, paper on cookies, it kind of fudged it. In the Kneels paper on cookies, it kind of fudged it by just pointing at the GDPR, even though e-privacy e is separate to the GDPR. Helpfully, the ECJ was a bit more prescriptive. And what it says is very simple. It's the website operator's job to provide the disclosures and collect the consent. 
Why does it say that? Well, it's a pretty simple analysis, and it's this. If you go to the, for example, if you go to the Fashion ID website, you're going there because of Fashion ID. You're not going there to meet a Facebook plugin. And because that's who the consumer is expecting to deal with, then that website, their website operator is the person whose job it is to provide the disclosures and collect the consent. That sounds fairly simple. It's a bit more expansive in the uh, Advocate General's opinion, but that's fairly convincing and sound reasoning in my view. At least it's pragmatic. Of course, that bit's cleared up. Now, of course, if you're joint controllers, you need a joint controller agreement as set out in Article 26. No problem with that. If there's one website operator and one or two third-party cookie providers. But if it's one website operator and 100 or 200 website cookie providers, sorry, 200 cookie providers, then that's actually a bit more problematic. So presumably everyone's going to default to some kind of, here's my standard joint controller terms, click here and it's all accepted or it's part of the uh, mechanism by which the cookie gets placed or the cookie provider gets access or who knows but there'll be some kind of mechanical arrangement because you can't see everyone going through uh, loads of article 26 agreements each time now in terms of the privacy notice to what extent do they differ from a standard privacy notice well the short answer not a great deal two controllers you've got to disclose two controllers and their ids maybe separate usages if there's legitimate interests, each one's a legitimate interest. Um, contact details for at least one of them, though uh, data subjects are entitled to have recourse against both, if that's what they wish. And also, most importantly, per Article 26, you've got to explain to the consumer the essence of the arrangement, which I don't, and that's the arrangement between the two controllers, which I just interpret as a clear explanation of who's in charge of doing what, if you want to find out this bit of information, you go here. If you want to find other information, you go there. And presumably, you confirm, confirming to the, to the user that they actually have the right to proceed against both would be kind of good manners and good practice. And then you collect consent, website operator's job. But of course, the website operator has a bit more complexity because he or she or it then has to maintain consent once collected so people can withdraw it later on. That makes things that bit more complicated, but not impossibly complicated because we now have CMPs, consent management platforms, make that a lot easier. Now, it's another interesting point here, and that is that, as you all know, the CNIL and the ICO have been very strong on the fact that you can't collect consent on behalf of someone else, or at least they've been very strong in saying, you can't have a contractual warranty. You can't rely on a contractual warranty that says someone else has collected consent on your behalf. But here we have, from the ECJ, a clear example of where that is permitted. So the, if you're Facebook, your consent has been collected not by Facebook, but by Fashion ID on behalf of Facebook. Now, that doesn't really totally undermine what the point is Keneal is trying to say, because they're saying that in the context of typically ad tech, where there's loads of controllers down the chain, a lot of whom aren't known or disclosed at the point of collection. 
but it does slightly undermine it and it does make a change. So that's roughly how the things work in terms of how the disclosures are made, who collects a consent at that in initial stage of uh, the cookie collection of data transmission to the third party cookie provider. The ECJ didn't say anything about the sub subsequent stage. So once that stage is over into the next stage, Facebook in this instance is a controller and it has to conform with all the standard controller provisions. It has to issue a privacy notice to the data subject and so on and so forth. Collect consent, that's what's needed and so on and so forth. Uh, and that wasn't talked about about the ECJ as a separate um, issue entirely. And it's more and more something that's particularly in ad tech world uh, being addressed by consent management platforms which are trying to uh, track consent and allow consent to be accessed by multiple parties and effectively get around the Keneal and ICO point that you can't rely on a contractual warranty uh, for a consent. Whether they will succeed or in that or not is a different story and that may become the subject of another podcast. Well, that brings us to another episode of GDPR Now, and I hope you found that both useful and interesting. If you'd like to appear on the show or if you've got questions or comments, please drop me a line at info at thisisdpo.co.uk. But before I go, one quick word. Um, those who listened to the previous episode on cybersecurity will have heard Andy Larkham talking about the series of modules he's bringing out on cybersecurity. Well, the news is the first one is out. It's free. His website is adlconsulting.co.uk, adlconsulting.co.uk. But if you go to the show notes, there's the link there, which will take you straight to the free module. Thank you for listening.